Hello, friends. Welcome back. Uh, we are on a roll right now. We're talking about reincarnation, right, Lou? Yes, uh, part of a uh, th what will be a three-part series. So if you haven't found part one, go back and find it. The fascinating story of Edgar Casey, and uh, yes. I'm I'm very interested in getting getting going with this again and getting yeah. in deeper. So today is part two of uh, a three-part series, and today we're going to be talking about more cases. If you can uh, see if you can get this book, it's called "I Have Lived Before: The True Story of the Reincarnation of Shanti Devi." by this name that I'm sure I'm going to not say it correctly. It's Stuer Lonerstrand. Uh, he's from Scandinavia. He is a uh, journalist, a reporter, a scientist who said he's going to get to the bottom of all this fraudulent talk of reincarnation. He was angry and he said, I'm going to fly to India when he heard about this case and expose this as a hoax. Uh, but in fact, he when he studied all the facts, he took photographs and he interviewed uh, Shanti Devi herself for many, many, many years throughout her life and interviewed the family members of both her family before she died and the family after she was reborn. And he became close friends with them and has written more than one book about his experiences there. And the reason he heard about it is because Mahatma Gandhi, we've all heard of Mahatma Gandhi, right? Yes. Mahatma Gandhi heard about this case in 1926, I believe, um, and 19 or, or soon, sometime around then. When he heard about it, he said, look, there are many cases because culturally people accept it, they don't poo-poo it, they don't hide it, and they just publicize it. When he heard about it, he said, look, I need a, a team of 15 scientists to examine this very closely and to write it up. So he picked very, uh, a lot of people, he picked actually 15 national leaders, a combination of national leaders who were, he thought, beyond corruption, could not be influenced. He picked eminent lawyers who were ethical and Supreme Court judges and respected journalists, altogether total 15, told them to together spend as much time as they need to go and see this girl and the previous family and the next family, set up whatever traps they could to see if there was any hoax and uh, determine if this was true. That's how Stuart Lonenstrand heard about it and came over to India because it was publicized all over the world. Here's the story. There was this woman whose name was Lugri Bai, L-U-G-D-I, Lugri Bai. She died on October 4th, 1926. One year and 10 months after she died, Shanti Devi was born. Lugdibai died in Mathura. Mathura, M-A-T-H-U-R-A, is a city close to Delhi, not too far away. Mm -hmm. Delhi is the capital of India, and Delhi was where Shanti Devi was born one year and 10 months after Lugdibai died. Lugdibai died in childbirth. She had one son that was born to her before this baby girl was born. That son's name was Naveen. Lugdibai loved her husband um, and loved her son. She didn't know her daughter who was being born, but was looking forward to getting this. So she expressed when she was born, when she was starting from the earliest age of two or three, she said there were a lot of things wrong with the family to which she was born. For instance, when she was in her previous life as Lugdibai, she and her family were Brahmins. 
So they did not allow any meat in the house. They didn't eat any meat. The new family Santibai was born into was meat eaters. And she would absolutely not only refuse to eat meat, she said, my religion doesn't allow it. I'm a Brahmin. And they said, are you kidding me? You're two years old. You know, you eat what we tell you to do. And she right. said, no, I'm not going to eat it. So there were many instances. You'll have to read the book. I don't want to belabor this. But when at age four, she started actually talking about the fact that she doesn't belong here. She was she brought herself into this life because of her husband who lives in Mathura. She says, I want to go back to Mathura and I want to see my husband and my children. I know that I died, but a child was born to me who's still living. She described her husband as being fair, uh, has a big wart on his left cheek and wore glasses, thick reading glasses. They said, what's his name? And she refused to take his name because in India, in, uh, unless you're westernized, the wives do not utter the husband's name. It's, it's not allowed oh, uh, out of respect and out of religion. She said, no, I can't say it. All she can say is that his house, the house where we stayed was in Mathura in front of a temple called the Dwarka Dish Temple. At age six, she gave a detailed account of her death in childbirth and what the doctors were doing to try to save her. The family doctor was amazed at the six-year-old girl's description of what happened. So a relative said, listen, you're bugging us all the time because that's all she spoke about is wanting to go yeah. to Mathura. Few times she actually left home and people picked her up miles further. She was asking people, how do you walk to Mathura? And people would tell her, go this way, go this way. And this six-year-old girl was walking towards Mathura and they'd pick her up and bring her back. So this relative said, look, I will take you there if you tell me the name of your husband so I can find out if there is such a person there. So he said, she said, okay, if you promise you'll take me there, I will whisper it in your ear because I'm not allowed to say it. Right. So she said, my husband's name is Pandit Kedarnath Chaube. Now, she says, she always described herself as a Chaubin. A wife of a Chaube is a Chaubin. So they then, with this team of 15 people, came and they tried to trick her. First, somebody came from um, um, Mathura, who was from the husband's family, but not the husband. And they tried to trick her. And they said, this person is your husband. And she said, no, it isn't. It's not my husband. So they were impressed that she knew that yeah. this was not her husband. And she, when the person was coming from Mathura, she said to her mother, you know, her brother, mother in her new birth, make uh, potato parathas, alu parathas, that is roti or bread with potato stuffed inside it and pumpkin squash uh, vegetable, because that's what my husband life, likes. When this person came from Mathura and went back and told her husband, Kedarnath, he was amazed. He says, that's true. And my wife knew that I liked those two things. So they arranged for these 15 uh, people that Mahatma Gandhi had uh, uh, assembled to take her with this. By this time, she was nine years old mm -hmm. to take her to Mathura. And they did a lot of uh, research until that time. At age nine, she went to the train station. When she got down at Mathura railway station, there was a big crowd of people there. Among them was her husband's older brother, which in, in Hindi is called a jet. So she got down and they asked for this elderly man to come forward. When he did, they said, do you recognize your husband? And she was, she put her uh, sari over her head with out of a mark of respect, bent down, touched his feet, and, and uh, 
folded her hands and moved to the side and whispered to the journalist, the Supreme Court judge who was with her, and says, that's not my husband. That's my jate, my brother-in-law. And then she saw her son, Naveen, who was now older than her at this time. Sure. And she hugged him and she started crying. She said, Naveen, my, my son. And he was older than she was. And then when she saw her husband, Kedarnath, she touched his feet. She was very, very respectful. And then she saw that he had married again, new wife. And she whispered to him, why did you marry her? Here's this nine-year-old child yeah. talking to this man. He says, had we not decided before my death that either one of us would not remarry if we died? And he was, had tears in his eyes. And at night, Kedarnath asked this nine-year-old girl, he said, how did you conceive? You had severe arthritis. You remember we, what we did for you to conceive? And she said, yes. And she, because of arthritis, uh, she described to him the full process of sexual intercourse that they went through to conceive that that child uh, during childbirth of which. And Kedarnath was absolutely amazed. He says, nobody else could have known this. Only my right. wife could have known this. She also described a safe that they had hidden that nobody else knew about. And she described where there was used to be a well that was no longer there. Uh, that they had, So this convinced everybody because the husband said, we hadn't told anybody about the safe. Nobody else knew about this well that is now filled up. Nobody else knew about my sexual intercourse with her. Uh, so um, what else can I tell you? Uh, she, she identified every member of the household correct, correctly. Um, and so that is the story of, of uh, uh, Shantibai. And there's many other details to this, which you can go back on, on the internet or get this book and read up about it. So the author was convinced and the Mahatma Gandhi and his commission, they were convinced too, I would imagine. Everybody was convinced. There was no doubt in anybody's mind. And there was nothing to gain because it wasn't as if she was asking for money. The family to which she had been born in Delhi were not looking for this. They were not pleased by this because it brought a lot of um, bad publicity to them. They said, you know, are you fraudsters. They were not, nobody was looking for money over there. There was no money to give. In India, it was a very poor country. At that time, the British were still there. Something like this was looked down upon. Um, and, and they said, oh, you're just, people accused them of all kinds of uh, ill motives for uh, producing this. So there was no benefit to either her or to uh, the, her family. But the Kedarnath's family certainly were convinced by all the things that she said and you can read the book for this, um, uh, to all the things that she said that convinced them that this was in fact Lugdibai that was then reborn and, and so on. Now, I don't know how, many, much, how much time do I have for this because the next episode I want to talk about how this comes about. So we're, we're 12 minutes into this episode. Oh, good, good. So let me talk to you also um, about uh, birthmarks and death marks. There was one story, and, and I won't go into as much detail in these stories. There was this person that uh, was born as a child. As a, he was an aggressive young boy, even as a child. And they found out later that he was an even more aggressive man when he was, um, a, a, as he died. And at the time, his mother brought him a glass of milk when he was two years old. And he looked at the glass of milk and in anger, pushed the glass of milk away so that she spilled it. And he scolded her. He said, 
what do you mean giving me a glass of milk? He says, when I was in my previous life, such and such was my name. We had two cows and a mare, a, a female donkey in my house. And I used to drink a bucket full of milk and you're offering me a glass of milk. <laughs> Mother didn't know what to say. What, what is this? Um, so a long story short, they then um, went back and with a lot of effort found out who he was. And he was a very aggressive person. He had in, in a fit of drunken rage, um, uh, sorry, in a, when he was drunk, he was uh, talking to another person at the bar where he was. And this was in, I think, Turkey. Um, and, and he had said something very insulting about this man's wife. And the other man had in a fit of rage, because he was also drunk, taken a knife and stabbed him multiple times in his abdomen and chest. Uh, and he died. And, you know, he, he was an angry man. He was fought and everybody knew him. as. And when they found out all this, the birthmarks he had, correspondence to the stab mark, corresponded to the marks that he had when he was stabbed. They went to his house. They found the two cows and the donkey. That's one story. Another story is about, um, sorry, where am I? <laughs> My apologies. Um, James Leninger, L-E-I-N-I-N-G-E-R. Read the book, Soul Survivor, the reincarnation of a World War II fighter pilot. When he was two years old and three years old, he was having nightmares. And he would, the parents were very concerned because he would say, airplane crash, on fire, little man can't get out. He was on his back as if he was in a plane. And with his legs, he was pushing as if he's pushing the cockpit uh, ceiling out. Um, he, from the time he was two, only played with planes. No baseball bats, no baseball balls, nothing. And this is in the United States. So yep. everything is televised. It's on 60 Minutes. It's on various TV channels. James Leninger. He was extremely knowledgeable about planes at one time. And he had all his toys, he would ask for more and more planes. The mother once looked at a plane that he had and she's looked at something on the back and she says, look, here's some bombs that the plane is carrying. And little James said, mom, that's not a bomb. That's a drop tank. That's called a drop tank. And he knew more about planes than his mother or father together. But these nightmares continued until they took him to a psychiatrist who specialized in um, reincarnation. And she said, the best thing to do is to let, let him just talk it out, express it. And as he expressed it, he the nightmares became less. And he revealed that he was a World War II fighter pilot um, stationed in um, Iwo Jima, Iwo Jima. And wow. he was shot down by the Japanese. The plane he had used was a Corsair. And he said to his mother, the Corsairs used to get flat tires all the time. Now, only a pilot knew that or somebody like that. Anyway, he said they used to get flat tires all the time. And he said, we were on an aircraft carrier named Natoma. When the father looked it up in the Library of Congress, he said it was actually called Natoma Bay. And, and he said, the, the little James uh, called, said there was his friend and co-pilot or bomber called Jack Larson. When they looked him up, they, Jack Larson was still alive and in Arkansas. So were the other team members from his plane. The only person that died was James. Hmm. And his name happened to be James at that time too. Um, so they all came together 
TV was interviewing them and they said that this guy was looking forward to getting back to his wife and family. And this was, I think, their last sortie. And they were flying over the Japanese in Iwo Jima and they got shot down. And he took a bomb hit right directly to him and he died. But everybody else was rescued. The pilot's name was James Houston Jr. And what James Leninger started doing is at the age of four, he started drawing planes. And every time he would sign himself as James the third, because James Houston Jr. meant he was the second. Yeah. So this was now James the third. You can actually look these up on YouTube. You can look them up uh, on Wikipedia and, and Google. The last one that, well, a few more. Uh, Pollock, P-O-L-L-O-C-K, twins. Pollock, twins, were from Hexham, Northumberland in England. Mr. Pollock and his wife were two extremely religious Christians in England that did not believe in reincarnation. The father heard about reincarnation and was very much interested in it and started to say to God as he went to church, you know, I know I'm a Christian. I shouldn't believe in reincarnation, but I'm fascinated by it. Um, and forgive me. Anyway, he had two daughters. One was Joanne and one was Jacqueline. I forget the exact ages that there were like four years difference between them. But one day, Joanne and Jacqueline, two sisters and a boy who was their neighbor, were walking towards school next to a brick road. It's a sad story. A woman in the small town of Hexham, sorry, small town of Hexham, the woman was so sad and suicidal that she wanted to kill herself. She took an overdose of sleeping pills and drank a lot of alcohol and figured she would drive her car fast and slam into a brick wall and kill herself. As it turned out, she was so disoriented. She was going very fast. And instead of hitting just the brick wall, she slammed the three kids into the brick wall. She didn't die, but the three kids died. Mm. Sorry. So Joanne and Jacqueline, the two daughters of the Mr. and Mrs. Pollock, died. The husband consoled himself by saying, look, I am a Christian, but I do believe in reincarnation. And I do believe I will pray and pray and pray in church that my God gives my two daughters back to me in the form of twins. As it turned out, the, 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 the wife conceived one and a half years after the two girls died. Now, here's an interesting thing that we should say. Why did Shanti Devi get born in Delhi and right. not in Mathura or close to Mathura, the closest one she could pick? How did Joanne and Jacqueline get born in not only in Hexham, but also to the same mother that they were born to once before? Very interesting question. So that so she was pregnant one and a half years after her two earlier daughter died. And she went to the doctor and the husband said, Doc, this has to be twins, right? Two girls, right? And the doctor said, no, I'm sorry. Um, this is, and, and this is all within, this is in the 20th century. This is not some ancient yep. thing. The, you can look it up, Pollock twins. Um, and the doctor said, no, sorry, it's just one baby. And he said, no, no, it can't be. It has to be two. It has to be two and it has to be two girls. And the doctor said, no, sorry, maybe next time. But right now it's only one. It was, he was wrong. The doctor was wrong. Turned out that they were twins. And so two twin girls were born and they were known, named Jillian and Jennifer. And Jillian and Jennifer, there's movies about this. 
the twins, when they could speak, spoke repeatedly about Joanne and Jacqueline, who everybody told her, told them, were your older sisters and they're not here anymore. And the twins said, no, they were not our older sisters, that's us. Yeah. So the father was so convinced that he actually went to the cemetery and took up the stones, the headstones, where Joanne and, and Jacqueline were buried. And he said, no point in having headstones because my daughters are here with me now. He went to church and he thanked God for giving his daughters back to him. He was in a great mood. So was his wife because there was no doubt in their mind. How was it that there were no doubt? Because the twins, Gillian and Jennifer, spoke always of the accident. They spoke about the injuries that they suffered, where the blood was coming from. Um, one sister pointed to the other, and there was a birthmark, by the way, uh, across from the center of uh, the eyebrows between above. And that was where I think Joanne, either one of the two girls, had had a mighty gash and that yeah. was, was bleeding. Um, so they, they spoke about the accident repeatedly because that was extremely traumatic to Joanne and Jacqueline. And so when Gillian and, and Jennifer were born, they would keep talking about this accident. At one time, the mother went up into the attic and she brought down two dolls that belonged to her deceased daughters and gave it to Gillian and Jennifer. They both immediately went to the respective dolls and Gillian said, Joanna's doll, she hugged it and said, this is my doll. Jennifer went to the other one and said, this is my doll. And that was exactly correct. And they never fought to say, this is my doll, that's my doll. They right. knew exactly what was which, which clothes were theirs. There was a toy clothes ringer that the Joanna claimed was hers. The father once wore a smock to do painting. And um, Jen Jacqueline said, why are you wearing this? Jacqueline was the younger daughter when they died. And he said, why not? He said, this is mom's smock. He says, oh, yeah, it's old now because this was new when Jacqueline was there. Jacqueline said, mommy used to wear it when she used to feed me. And he, she was right. So when at age four, they took them back. So they moved away from Hexham, the family, uh, after the girl's death, and before yeah. these girls were born. These girls had never seen Hexham. At age right. four, when they kept talking about the accident and so on, they decided to take a trip to Hexham. And when they were there, the girls, never having been there before, told them where the school was, where the swings were, where the park was, where they used to uh, go and play. And uh, also when the news agencies came, because obviously BBC was right on it, they showed them on the waist uh, a birthmark that, that was an injury for one of the girls and the mark on the scar, which was the injury from the other uh, girl's forehead. Um, so that was the other story that I wanted to tell you. And, okay, last one. How mm -hmm. much time do we have? Uh, We've got Luke? time. Tell the story. Everyone okay. wants to hear the story. Okay. <laughs> There's a, a book called Life Between Life by a psychiatrist named Joel Witten. He, again, this was in Canada, but there was an American patient named Harold Jaworski. So he was having some symptoms for which the psychiatrist Joel Witten said, I'm going to hypnotize you. When he hypnotized him, Again, like I experienced with my with the nurse that I talked about in episode one, this Harold Jaworski started speaking in a different voice and is written in this book, Life After Life Between Life. And he said in his past life, one of his past lives, he was a Viking named Thor. 
And so the psychiatrist, Witten, said, write down some words and phrases that you knew from the language you spoke at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Jaworski, or Thor, didn't write them down, but he spoke them. 22 words and phrases which, which the psychiatrist was recording. He, when he woke up, he had given these words. He didn't understand them himself. A psychiatrist asked Jaworski, what do these words mean? He said, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't even know what words they were. And so the psychiatrist was very diligent. He took them to many different people to say, what do these words mean? The people that spoke uh, languages from the Scandinavian countries. None of them knew. He found one person who was an expert in the, the University of Canada in Icelandic and Norwegian languages. And that person said, this is a extinct language called Old Norse, a Viking language that was popular in the year 700 CE, common era, to 1300 uh, CE, 700 to 1300, very, very old, and nobody uses it anymore. But they're accurate words. Then uh, the psychiatrist hypnotized Harold subsequent times. And another time he said he was, his name was, um, his name was, uh, he was from Mesopotamia. And his name at that time was Xando. And so the psychiatrist said, if I ask him same thing, question, you know, give me some words, people will say, well, he knew already what you were going to ask him. So he practiced these words from Mesopotamia. This time the psychiatrist said, write down the word brother, as you spoke it in Mesopotamia, the word house and the word clothes and some other words. Right. He, Jaworski, the patient, started writing a mysterious script in a very spider-like, child-like script and Arabic-style Urdu kind of words. When he woke up, the psychiatrist asked Harold, what is this that you've written? And this patient looked at it. He said, I don't know. It just looks like a bunch of squiggles. It's pure garbage was his words. And so he went, the psychiatrist took this to many experts until he found somebody in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., a man by the name of uh, Ibrahim Pulhadi. He's an expert in Persian and Iranian languages in the Library of Congress. And he said that this was an authentic representation of a long extinct language called Sasanid Pahlavi, used in Mesopotamia between 226 and 651 AD. And the reputation that this man got was Harold is the only human being to communicate in two verifiable languages that no longer exist. So the question then arises, and this is where we'll do in the third episode, is all these examples I gave you, each of them raises questions in your mind and my mind in anybody's mind. How does reincarnation take place? How does the Atman go from one body to another? Why does it go from one body to another? What happens that causes it to remember from one experience to the other. Why does it choose which family it's born in? Why does it choose which city it's born in or town or whatever? How does it know the languages from before? How does it know the skills that you develop from before? All of these questions and many others that it comes up and we'll handle that next time. Lou, did you have any comments or questions or anything you want to say? No, I want to get on to the third episode and <laughs> get the explanations and discuss these things, yeah. Okay. 
All right, good. So friends, I look forward to seeing you in episode three of Reincarnations. Thank you for joining us.